I see the right Reverend Dunlap forgot to wear his ascot today. <laughs> what a blessing and a joy and a privilege it is for me to be with you today, Epiphany. Uh, how y'all feeling? This is the day the Lord has made. And because he's made it, we rejoice, we're glad in it. There's an exercise we do at Restoration, maybe every Sunday, but I want you to join me in this. I want you to take your hand. Go ahead, take your hand, hold it up. Put it in front of your face. Blow on it. Now what you felt hit you in your face. Hopefully you had a mint, but what you felt <laughs> hit you on your face was breath that the Lord gave you. And the Bible says this, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Not everything that feels like praising the Lord, praise the Lord. Not everything who's in a good mood, praise the Lord. But everything that has breath, praise the Lord. I bid you greetings from Restoration Church all the way from 25 minutes from here. And um, I think right about now, uh, Pastor AJ is preaching. No, yeah, no, church is over now. So, um, but either way, nonetheless, I bid you greetings. Glad to see you guys. Uh, you know, the Lord has been good at restoration. Uh, we've had the wonderful privilege recently of getting a building. And uh, the Lord is good about, we're really excited about that. Pray for us. We're in the middle of a construction job. Uh, which, you know, I didn't know that stuff was that in involved, but it kind of is. And, and not only is, the, is it involved, but, you know, our city requires us have, to have tons and tons of permits, which is an involved process. So uh, pray for us in that, um, but it's good to see you guys. Uh, if you can, won't you turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. It's good to see familiar faces, and then it's good to see a bunch of folk I don't know, but it's good to see you. Jonah chapter 3, when you're there, say I'm there. Looking, say still looking. All right, I'll give you a few moments. My lovely wife is here with me in this service. I guess I'm her husband and her father. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding, boo. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. All right, let's go to the Bible. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should just stay with the text. When you're there, say, I'm there. All right, it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible and you can follow along with us. But we're reading from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 down to 10. Let's stand to our feet as we read the word of the Lord. It says this, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Say second time. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up, went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. And now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In forty days Nineveh will be demolished. And then the people of Nineveh believed God. Say, believed God. This is my part. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And verse 6 says, And when the, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his, robe, his royal robe, and put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. 
Then he issued a decree in Nineveh saying, by order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth and everyone must call earnestly on God and each one must turn from his evil way and from his wrongdoing. And who knows, God may relent and turn, he may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. And verse 10 says this, then God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. And so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. I want you to turn to the person next to you to help me announce this. Say neighbor. Today we're going to talk about God's grace in second chances. Turn to the person on the other side and say, neighbor, what chance number are you on? You may be seated. This is the awake crowd. This is the one that slept in and got up. Let's pray. Father, what a joy and honor and a privilege it is to call on your name. Thank you for the open door and the privilege through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your holy writ, your scripture, your word that is sharper than any two-edged sword that you have given to nobodies to proclaim. And Father, I don't enter into this task lightly. I understand the weight of it. And I'm grateful that you'd use me, but I ask that you use me, that you decrease me, decrease me, let you increase, hide me so far behind the cross of Christ that it is Jesus that people see. And let me not glory in your presence. And then I pray for us in this room, Father, that you would give us ears to hear you, give us hearts to embrace your truth, and give us feet to walk after in obedience. I pray, Father, that if there are those among us who have never placed faith in your son, Jesus, that you would rip open our hearts and that they would do so today. And then, for Father, for those who are in the room who know you, I pray that you would speak to us, draw us closer, draw us nearer, and help us understand where it is you're calling us to go and be. It's in Jesus' name we pray this prayer. The church says amen. amen. The year was 1976. America was in the process of celebrating its bicentennial anniversary, and every place around the country was celebrating. Uh, fireworks and things thrown up in the air, barbecues from coast to coast. All places were in a celebratory mode except New York City. This was the summer of Sam. Some of you are too young to remember this, but, but this is when a man named David Berkowitz went throughout the city of New York shooting people for no reason. He would see couples sitting in cars, maybe kissing, maybe talking, and he would unload his full revolver in the car, and he would disappear. New York City sat in pause and standstill, waiting and waiting and waiting for that man to be caught. Sooner or later, David Berkowitz is captured by the police, and it's in his interrogation that he begins to say some disturbing things. 
he begins to say that he was under the influence of demons, that there was a dog that told him to go about and to take these innocent lives, David Berkowitz. Serving a prison sentence for the rest of his life in jail, he finds Jesus Christ. David Berkowitz, who called himself the son of Sam, the media referred to him as son of Sam, said, no longer call me son of Sam, but instead call me son of hope. This wasn't a prison conversion where he was trying to lessen his stay in jail. He said, I fully accept what I've done, and I embrace what is coming for me in this jail. He says, but I'm here to tell you that something has happened. I have met the risen Savior, and he has changed my life. While there are some people who love to hear these things, there are some who are reeling at the scandal of grace. Grace is scandalous. The fact that God would save someone who we see as so heinous, someone who took the lives of innocent people. There are families who mourn, who will never get their loved ones back. And David Berkowitz has the audacity to meet Jesus and is saved by God. David Berkowitz, the scandal of grace. Grace is something that is often applied, and it is applied to you if you have faith in Jesus Christ. I'd say it's applied to you if you're still alive. It is God's unmerited favor. Simply means you do nothing to gain it. You can't, you can't speak your way into it. You can't buy your way into it. You can't read your way into it. It is something given to you freely by God. Whenever you read the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, grace is always coupled with another theologically rich term, and that is mercy. They are two sides of the same coin. Where there is grace, there is mercy. Where there is mercy, there is also grace. To define my terms, let, let me help you for a second. Mercy is when you acted a fool in school. Teacher called your mother and said, when you come home, you're going to get in trouble for a fool you acted in school. You're walking home to school and Sam Cooke is playing in the background. You can hear him saying, I was born by the river in a little tent, but a change is going to come. You are Malcolm X in Denzel Washington movie X. You are strolling like Spike Lee does on your way home. Stomach is starting to turn. You know that something waits for you just on the other side of the door. Mercy is when you open the door and your parent does not beat the brakes off you. That's mercy. But grace takes it a step further. Grace is when you not only don't get what you deserve, grace is when your mother embraces you. Let, let me see if I can define it differently. Mercy, it's when you're driving to school and you are breaking all kind of speed barriers. You have run stop signs, you have seen red lights as suggestions, and you are on your way to work. And the police pulls you over. This time it is a justified stop. Police walks up to your door and says, you know you were going 10 to 15 over the speed limit. You ought to go to jail for reckless endangerment but I'm just gonna let you go. That's mercy. Grace is when the, teacher, when, the, when the police, and I know this does not happen, but steps in and says, I'll escort you to work. <laughs> mercy and grace. Grace happens when we don't get what we deserve, but we get a whole lot more that we don't deserve. And in this particular text, we see that grace often shows up very concretely in second chances. 
In fact, I'd venture to say beyond second chances, third chances, fourth chances, 700 chances, grace continues to abound in the fact that you and I got another chance. And this text then is going to teach us that on account of God's grace, it's very simple, God gives people a second chance. Because of God's grace and mercy, he gives folk who have no reason to get it a second and a third chance. This particular text, in order to understand chapter 3, you have to understand this book in its context. God is about to deal with the Assyrian nation. Now, you've got to understand that the Assyrians are not just a state that are near the people of Israel. The the Assyrians were an empire that propped itself up upon the oppressed. The Assyrians were an empire that, that built itself on the bloody backs of the broken. The Assyrian government was a a government that was viewed by everyone who was non-Assyrian as the quintessential meaning of evil. It was the worst face on the earth to many people because they were known for their notorious oppression. They would come into cities and snatch people out through chains and yanking them out to slavery to build their kingdom. The Assyrians, known for their evil. Now God, true to his character in chapter 1 verse 2, says their evil has come up before me, literally meaning it has risen before his face. The God who often sides with the afflicted, the God who is near to the brokenhearted, has heard the cries of the afflicted and he can't take no more. God is now getting up off of his throne and he is about to deal with this nation. He says, I have seen you kill people that ain't even my people. I have seen you smash them and I can't take it no more. I have waited patiently. I have waited for repentance. No repentance has come, but now I'm about to deal with it. God in the traditional sense raises up a prophet. You got to understand that the prophet is not the one who just bids you good news. The prophet is not the one who tells your future and makes you feel good, but the prophet is often the one who goes against the political grain. This is the one who comes out of the stream to critique it. This is the one who says, although you think you are somebody, Assyria, God has a beef with you. This is the one who says, though you enjoy the luxury and pleasure you have, God is not in any way blessing you. He is against you. This is the prophet who stands up and says, God is coming for you. God takes Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to go to Assyria. Jonah is a lot like me in some sense because he understands the weight of this. And Jonah says, I shan't, I will not. In fact, your judgment ought to fall down right now. I'm not saying nothing to those people. (laughs) Embedded in Jonah's mind is an understanding that it is a possibility that they may hear and God may be kind. And Jonah says, they are on their way to my house. I have nothing kind to say to these Assyrians. In fact, I got nothing kind to say to you. Jonah doesn't even act like he's heading in the direction. Jonah goes in the opposite direction, doesn't stop at the coast, but rather charters a boat and goes far out to sea. But wouldn't you have it? God says, Jonah, you might think you have escaped your mother. You might have thought you escaped your daddy, but you ain't escaped me. And God literally hurls a storm. The imagery of the Greek is is of an archer taking aim. And God literally takes aim at a storm that is tailor-made for Jonah. It is made for him and him only. It is not really going to affect the people in the boat like it's going to get him. God comes after Jonah, breaks him, throws him into the water, and even in the water, God shows grace to Jonah. 
massive fish comes and takes Jonah and holds him for three days. Now, I know I just offended the sensibilities of the folk who done read more than four books, but if God can make stuff ex nihilo out of nothing, surely he can make a fish to hold a man for three days. God takes this ship, this fish, and brings Jonah to the land after Jonah has come to a place of repentance and Jonah is spewn out. The text begins in chapter 3 where it says, and then God spoke to him a second time. You can glance past that if you want to. You can, you can rush past that if you want to and not understanding that this man who made himself unusable, this man who would have been deemed as absolutely disqualified, this man who, who by his own statement said, I ain't for the job, don't want the job, but God has shifted and squeezed and made what was unusable into something usable. Let me see if I can illustrate this. My, my sister-in-law, who, whom I love dearly, I actually love my in-laws. I know I ain't saying that because my wife is there. I actually do love my in-laws. <laughs> my sister-in-law has an amazing gift. She, on trash day, does something that I think is absolute foolishness. She gets in her car and drives around Columbia, South Carolina, looking at the trash. She, she's not looking at the trash to see if it's been picked up. She's not looking at the trash to see if the recycle bins are out and if the proper things are in the recycle bins, and if not, she'll give you a ticket. She, she's driving around because she's looking at the trash. She has an ability to be able to see things that people have discarded, things that people have said, I no longer have use for this table. It is crap. It is ugly. It is blemished. It is dirty. I, I no longer want it, but she can see it and see the beautiful creation that she wants it to be. And oftentimes, she'll jump right out of her car and snatch that stuff and throw it right in her car. First, I praise God that that ain't running in that family because my wife, praise Jesus, ain't got that spirit upon her. But you should see my sister-in-law in her workout room as she is in there. She is scraping out imperfections. She is smoothing bumps down on these tables. She is taking pieces and adding it to things that are broken. And she is painting it to make it beautiful so that it can be used again. God is able to take people that are broken that he himself breaks. He is able to take things and wrap it in the blood of Christ and make something that is absolutely unusable, and he is able to make it usable again. Preacher, you don't know where I've been. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know how far my sin has taken me, but the blood of Christ is able to clean you up better than she can and to make you usable. The text tells us, God says to him a second time, I want you to go to Nineveh and proclaim it a message that I give you. Jonah halfway learned his lesson this time. We have no indication here that his heart has changed. We know in chapter 4 that it has not, but at least he knows that God ain't planned. Now, God's not like me. I would have given an introduction to that command. Jonah, you saw what I did last time. Jonah, it would behoove you not to make the same mistake again. But God, in such a gracious way, doesn't even throw his mess back up in his face. Oh, there's a moment there. There are some of us in this room that throw folk mess right back up in their face. They come begging apology. I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. But let me give you the Rolodex of what you've done. God doesn't even slam it back in his face. He says, go and proclaim the message that I give you to proclaim text tells us that he goes and 
Can't you see Jonah as he's approaching Nineveh? This city that the text says is extremely great. Now, this word is almost a double entendre. It is something that means, yes, it is large. It is massive. It has a lot of people in it. It is 57 square miles round. It is huge. It is big. It is arrogant. It is, it is boastful. It is a big city. But literally in the Greek, it literally means exceedingly great to God. God sees this city that is the bane of evil. God sees this city that absolutely should be removed from the face of the earth. God sees a city that really, if it was not there, life would be better for a whole lot of people. But to him, these folk in this city mean something. There, there is a sense that even those who, all of us, who are extremely wicked, we got our church stuff on today. We got our nice little hair wraps on. We got our shirts buttoned up and we done came ready for church, but God knows you for what you are. God sees your wickedness. He smells your putrefaction. And yet he sees us as worth something, worth something so much that he'll send his son to die for us. God sees this city as exceedingly great. Jonah looks at this city and says, it's a massive city. I don't want to be here. My skin is itching at the very thought of walking through this gate. But in obedience to God, I'm going to do it. And you can see Jonah as he thinks about, now how am I going to preach throughout this city? This is pre-loudspeaker. This is pre-Facebook. This is pre-Instagram Live. This is pre-Snapchat. How will I get this news to this massive city? Jonah says, I think I'll take it in sectors. You can see Jonah as he enters into the first neighborhood. He stands on the corner and he preaches a sermon that is the shortest sermon in history. A sermon that I'm sure you probably wish I was preaching now. <laughs> sermon that's nothing but a line. He says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be devastated. It will be destroyed. Doors of the church are open. No one responds. And Jonah takes a walk. Can't you see him as he makes his way to the next street corner? Forty days from now, and Nineveh will be destroyed. Doors of the church are open. One person comes forward. Jonah walks off to the next section. Forty days from now, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah is preaching this message with the absolute most fire. He, he understands that what he is saying is a word that cuts straight to the heart. He wants them to know there ain't no compassion, no love there. Forty days, you are destroyed. But in that word, destroyed, devastated, hapak in the Hebrew has an interesting term in it. It literally means to turn or be turned about. So as he was speaking this word, the Assyrians likely heard it as something can happen to them and maybe God might be gracious. The text tells us that they began to hear this message and they believed God. Can't you see it? They ain't never been to Jerusalem Baptist. They've never been set a foot in Jonah's church. They don't even know this man. He has no marquee. No one has announced his coming. No one knows who he is. And no one has vouched for him. But this strange dude who is not from here comes and preaches and something begins to happen. They begin to believe God. They hear what God says and God uses this unusable, filthy man to speak. Come here, Paul. I hear you saying that God puts treasure in these unearthed clays so that the surprise 
surpassing power of God might be made known. This is a sense where when God uses the unusable, he speaks when we don't want to. When we speak, he speaks. And his word has the power to touch and change. They literally began to believe. (laughs) It's not that they necessarily were converted and went to his church yet, but they believe what God said about their foolishness. Come here for a second. There is a sense that when God speaks about our sin, we've got to believe what he says about our sin. Oftentimes we deal with our sin too casually. We, we think that God sees our sin as the cutest little boop. We done made a mistake and oh, God is so gracious. The song talks about it and he'll forgive. Thank you, Jesus. But when God sees sin, sin is serious to him. It is the reason why he sends his son to not go to sleep for it, but to die for it. It is something that stinks to his nostrils. And when God deals with your sin, you can't see it as a mistake. You got to see it for what it is. Text tells us that they began to believe. Not only do they believe, but they grieve. You see something interesting happen. It begins to go across the whole city, almost as though someone pulled out their Facebook and said, you got to hear this preacher. This preacher has said something about me. People are texting about this dude. You got to come hear what this man is saying and something about even all of that message, so much so that the whole city comes to the place and calls a fast. I lost half of you on that because they weren't going to eat no more food. They call a fast. They take off their clothes and they put on sackcloth. Now, unless you're from the country, you don't get the significance of burlap. Burlap doesn't feel good at all. Burlap on your body has a way of chafing your skin. It's intended to be an irritant to your body. Now, transport back to the ancient Near East. When someone wore burlap in the context of grief, it meant I want to feel the discomfort that my sin brings. It is a reminder to say that although I lived in my sin and it did nothing to me, my sin is grieving me. There is a sense where your sin has got to grieve you, where you have got to come to the place of saying my sin sucks and even if it makes me feel good it does not please God and it grieves me they believe and they grieve wouldn't you know it the king begins to see this he's on his throne and he's scrolling through his timeline he notices that the fashion in his city began to change no one's wearing pastels and skinnies no more The makeup of the day is no longer Mac or anything higher. It has changed now. Everyone in the city is wearing burlap. He's calling his council and says, why is everyone wearing burlap? And what happened to her makeup? (laughs) He notices that his whole city is sitting in ashes. Now, you don't get the significance of this because a, a prophet who came to a city to proclaim against a city, the king wouldn't really necessarily care about that, but because you're supposed to, the Quran says that when you come into the city, you don't go and just start speaking to the folk. You got to see the king first. You got to let the king take a hem of your garment to see that you're actually truly a prophet before you actually have permission to speak to his people. The king says that there is somebody in my city that has been preaching in here and has turned the hearts of my city. I got to know about it. You can see him now as he calls his associates and say, somebody give me an explanation of the meaning of this. As he looks and tries to understand it, they say there is a prophet in the city. And the city has been turned. 
The king hears this message, and the text tells us that he rises off of his throne, takes off his royal robe, sets it aside, puts on burlap, and he sits in ashes. Don't, don't miss the movement here. He comes off of his throne, which in the context of an Assyrian king, the throne would have been elevated high over the people. It would have been saying, I am somebody and you are nobody. I am the one who is nearest to God. In fact, I might even be him in the flesh. This one gets up off of his throne, takes off of his royal clothes, and sits on the ground in some ashes. He hears the word of God and it hits him so hard that he comes off of his high horse. There is a sense where God's word and the gospel has to tell you that you ain't all you thought you were. You might have read a few books. You might have got a few extra dollars that your mama did not have. You might even be in a stable relationship, but the gospel tells you, you ain't got it like you think you do. He comes off of his seat. And he says, this cannot just be a change for today, but rather this has to be comprehensive. He makes a decree and he says, this is now what I'm saying. And this ain't just him putting out a rant on Facebook. This is a law. He says, let it be heard. Me and my nobles are making this clear. Everybody is going on a fast. No one eats, no one drinks. And just so you don't sneak up, your animals don't eat or drink. So your animals are going to feel the pain that you brought. Not only are we going to do this, but let each and every person call out to God and turn from his or her ways. Let me pause right there for a second, because oftentimes our repentance can actually be nothing. Sometimes our repentance can be a padded, I'm sorry. It can be a spiritual way of just saying my sin is passed over. But, but there has to be a sense when we repent that we actually turn from sin, that we see sin for what it is and we turn from it, that we don't see it as something to be held from, but we fight with the power that the Holy Ghost gives us to say, I will turn from it even if I turn from it every day. He says, let every person turn from the violence in his hands. Let every person put down his knives. Let every person free those that they have oppressed. Let everyone stop what they're doing. And perhaps maybe God will relent. The text tells us that after God sees their actions, he sees what they did, it says that he relents. Relent is not to repent. Repent implies that you have done wrong. Relent literally means to change the course. It means that he has turned his mind from the threats that he gave him. I was going to destroy you, but I see that you changed. I'm not. Embedded in the word relent is a statement of compassion. It is not just God saying, I'm going to turn and hold it for tomorrow. But it is God who is so compassionate and he pours it out on these evil folk that he turns from it. And the text tells us that he did not do it. This text tells us that God, as a count of his grace, gives us second chances. There are two ways in which this shows up in the text. First, God forgives the unforgivable. You got to see these Assyrians. These are folk that no one ever would have thought that God could ever forgive. These are people who have murdered millions, murdered thousands, pillaged land and taken money. And yet because of a change of heart, God in his grace forgives those who are deemed unforgivable. Let me talk to you for a second because you may not see yourself as an Assyrian, but you have done some things. You have gone some places. You have been some places with some people and done things with those people. And God knows you for what you really are, but there is no sin that you can commit that is too big for the cross that Jesus died on. God forgives 
the unforgivable, but then God also uses the unusable. We started with this story of Jonah. Jonah, who had made a major decision to turn away from God, who absolutely disqualified himself from the ministry. The one who, even as he was preaching, his heart still was not changed. But God had a way of using what could not be used to make it usable for his glory. God is able to use you even when you think God cannot use you. God has a desire to use you even when you feel like there is nothing that you bring to the table. God has a way of using you even when you feel like you're dirty and too messy. There is nothing that God cannot do that the blood of Jesus can't wash off you. Nothing you can do that the blood of Jesus can't wash off you because Jesus Christ will come one day and he will come down to this earth and he would take your sin on his back. That ain't no small thing, you know. That ain't just your actions that you are aware of today. That's the stuff you ain't even know about. That's the part of you that you don't want nobody to know. Jesus took those on his back. That Jesus who God loved so much that he sent to die for folk who were slapping him in the face. That Jesus would take a cross that had your and my name etched on it. A cross that was forged out of wood for us that we should have been on, that we should have died for to put your sin on his son's back to hang on the cross. Jesus, as he would drag his cross through the city, watching his mother weep as he would go to his death. That Jesus, that Jesus who would watch as nails would be pierced in his hands for sins that he did not commit. That Jesus who would look down and watch nails pierce his feet for people he had no, he, that, that they could have cared less about him. That Jesus who would hang his head and die in our place. That Jesus. God, because of that Jesus, is able to use those who are unusable. Because of that Jesus, God is able to forgive those who are absolutely unforgivable. Because that Jesus got up from the grave. Because that Jesus got up from the grave, you and I have the ability to have a new life because of what he has done for us. Therefore, he can give you and I a second chance because Jesus gave us the second chance. He can give you and I a third chance because Jesus gives us a third chance. He can give us a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, a hundred, a seven hundred, a nine million chance because of the Jesus who died for us. And his second chance means that he can use the absolutely unusable, but he can absolutely forgive the unforgivable. I close with the story. There was once a man, a man who was one who was circumcised on the eighth day, a man who said he was of the nation of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a man who said he was from the tribe of Benjamin, the one that David himself would hail from, a man who took his training from Gamaliel, the man who was well versed in Jewish law and therefore saw himself as absolutely blameless, so blameless that he persecuted the very church that Jesus died for. Persecuted. I'm not talking about talked about on a bad day. I'm talking about murdered. I'm talking about pursued to kill. He said, I am good and I was that man. This man named Paul of Tarsus, Saul of Sarsus, was on his way to kill more Christians and God meets him. Jesus catapults him off of his horse and blinds him and takes this man 
who would have been unusable because he was killing the very church that he would help spread and expand. That man who had seen people stoned and murdered and lost jobs and houses burned and pillaged and on his way to do more can have his absolutely unforgivable sins forgiven. And that man is the man that is because of him that many of us know the gospel today. Because of Jesus Christ, he can take that which is unusable and make it usable. And he can take that which is unforgivable, and he can make it absolutely forgivable. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much for Jesus. Let, we, we, we don't ever want to just say that as a thing to be said, but we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that many of us are on time chances that we can't even count. Many of us have promised, Lord, that we wouldn't do some things again, and yet you still forgive us.